Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We're here for the second of a two-part series of interviews with Professor Peter D. Ward, a paleontologist and professor of biology and earth and space sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. Peter Ward is the author of The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps, in which he describes expected conditions in 2050, 2300, and 2500. In this second of the two-part interview with Peter Ward, recorded on August 2, 2010, we begin with a discussion of why, in the face of clear evidence, there continues to be a denial of global warming. been 200,000 years on this planet. The interesting thing about it is is that most mammals last five to seven million years, most mammal species. So even if we're just average, we should have a lot of time. I don't think we're going to go extinct quite so quickly, but how much of that time, if we have five to seven million years, will we be happy and not miserable? And global climate change, as we're at least as we're pushing it on the planet now, could certainly make us miserable and fairly soon, too. Well, there are some people, and you alluded to them again in our earlier part when you were visiting uh, Napa Valley and a wine growers conference where you were almost booed off the stage when you were talking about in the not-so-distant future, uh, Napa Valley would be good for growing sugar beets as opposed to wine. The people who deny global warming, what's behind that denial as exemplified by the wine growers? Part of it is, and give them credit, that it is very difficult science and that this isn't a very simple thing like Isaac Newton dropping an apple and down it goes. Because we're dealing with time intervals that are really tough to study, we're dealing with, in many cases, modeling. But the, the problem is a lot of it is the denial comes from it can't be true because, oh my gosh, if it is true, boy, things will be really bad. So therefore, it just can't be true. And there's this sense that it just can't be true. <laughs> Things would be so horrible. And that denial, a lot of it comes from mainstream journalism. Look, any, any mainstream journalism now has both sides to an argument, certainly when it comes to science. And one of the science areas that I studied years ago and was really fun, what killed the dinosaurs? Well, we know now, and, and the vast, vast majority of scientists know and believe and understand from the evidence that a big asteroid came down, hit the Earth, and it was the environmental effects of that. And yet, even till today, any time you have that story cropping up again, you will have, but on the other hand, and here's the denier, journalism requires the opposite side of things. It's just built into the system. And because of that, Let's go back to Isaac Newton. You know, if, if journalists would go after this whole gravity story and they say, but on the other hand, there's still people who believe that apples, if dropped, will go up. It, it's just that. It is part of the system that we have that journalists are going to have to put in the opposite side when there is no opposite side. 
Well, I would also suggest that it's part of the system that of the almost 7 billion of us that live on this earth, we each see the world revolving around each one of us individually, uh, truly no matter where we are whether we're working uh, 20 hours a day every day in uh, some countries or a more leisurely existence in other countries. And then, at the maximum, most people live uh, 80 years if they're lucky. Well, certainly our short time spans, when we're dealing with something such as climate change, it isn't day and night. And really, perhaps ground zero of that is sea level change. The, the, The oceans are rising. They're rising because the planet is heating, and as the planet heats, we're melting ice, as well as if we heat water, it expands. So it's rising sea level, but it's happening at such a slow level right now. I mean, right now is the operative word that people just don't want to believe this. And yet there are signs all around us, signs all around us that this is happening. New Zealand has already opened up its borders to various Pacific Islanders on the lowest lying islands out there. I think it's Tuvalu is one, and there are a couple of others. These are really low atolls. And already now, just the the few millimeters has been enough to start displacing people off these areas. This is just the start. The big displacements will start happening when we get even a foot rise and then several feet in places like Bangladesh, which is the biggest of the really crowded countries that are at mainly at sea level. So it is the smoke creep of it, but but trust me, over the next decades, that creep is going to start increasing so that it becomes visible on first on a decadal scale and then fairly soon on a yearly scale. Some people say that the uh, low-lying Pacific islands are not rising, but in fact they're uh, lowering. They're going down. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> It's it's certainly geologically, all you have to do is go out there, and we have the ability now through lasers and satellites. I mean, the satellite measurement systems have totally changed our perceptions of how our planet works. In the old days, you could have said that. Certainly sea areas, the sea, uh, as coral atolls grow, there is a compression of the crust below them, but the atolls have been living for millions of years. I mean, these are really living systems, and the corals themselves are now being overwhelmed by the rate of sea level rise. So there's pretty good scientific evidence that it's not the sea or the level of the crust that's depressing, but these these are being inundated. And the same thing has happened to Bangladesh, and the same thing has happened in Holland. I mean, ask the Dutch what's going on. They already have a very significant proportion of the gross national product being put into sea defense and defense against the rising uh, coastline. They're called the low countries for a very good reason. And they are like these low-lying atolls and just like Bangladesh, ground zero for sea level rise. So you were characterizing it as people not wanting to believe it, journalists wanting to present both sides of the story. And you talk about it in the flooded earth as public opinion versus scientific writing. Well, part of it, too, is I have to blame fellow scientists. I gave a a talk at my university about the culture of university science departments. If you are a brand-new hire at my university or any really good university, such as the University of California, and you're coming up for tenure, you are working as fast and as furiously as you can 
and you're talking about the 20-hour people. Trust me, if you're at a great university and you're coming up for tenure, you're one of those 20-hour-a-day people writing your scientific papers. You are not writing popular science about what's happening in your field because the tenure committee does not care. You get zero points for something that tries to get to the people. It just... I've been on so many tenure reviews. I'm as guilty as any, I guess. Not anymore, but I certainly was in the past. That, that's useless. You need to be writing for your peer scientists. Scientists write for scientists. They don't write for the public. Can you venture to say that that's misguided on the part of the university? It's totally misguided. We scientists are part of the public. The public is funding us. Billions of public dollars go to the scientists every year through the various foundations, National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health, even Department of Defense. There is enormous money, and the public gets, for that huge investment, nothing back except what filters out from the various scientific discoveries. At this moment, we are failing. We are absolutely failing the American public. We being the scientists... We, the scientists, which I still count myself one as. So what to do? You are within the scientific community, a tenured professor. How can you address that issue for the benefit of your work on a larger scale and the benefit of the rest of us that can only read about your work in books like yours or hear them on programs like this? Well, <laughs> one voice does nothing. Uh, there, there's certainly a groundswell among many scientists realizing that there has to be some, some interest in getting the public better educated. Look, to its credit, the scientific community, more and more of us are actually trying to write books like the one I wrote, trying to get out there in Scientific American or even Parade Magazine once in a while. Let's get some good science in there. Science literacy in this country is miserable. Well, that's somewhat parallel with what uh, Spencer Wells said in his recent book, Pandora's Seed, that uh, 40% of the people in the United States believe in a creationist theory of how our species came to be. That's quite a few. Well, I would venture that I, I've actually did some talk show here and there around the world. I would venture that the Philippines, the population of the Philippines, has greater science literacy than the United States of America does. So why is that? Well, a part of it's the complete abject failure of people like me, the scientific community. Part of it is that we in this country have this sense that we are a, a religious country and that there is great belief in Scripture and that Scripture can actually explain the, the natural world as well as the moral world. So the fact that we have not um, called that to a greater... Look, the senior senator from Oklahoma now, Senator Imhoff absolutely disbelieves in global warming, and he will not even look at the data. They just say no. There is, I really take Obama to task right now. The, the climate bill, the fact we need climate action now, nothing is happening because our president has said, look, that's a, that's a fight I just can't win. Some of these fights you can't win unless you go at it over and over and over again. We need a president to keep standing up and say there is no greater calamity it's not going to face you. It's facing your children, and especially their children. We have to start now. A failure in leadership. That's what Obama is doing at this very moment. And he's the one with the bully pulpit. He's a bully pulpit. He's never stood up and said, look, all the problems we seem to have right now, 
wait till you see what sea level rise does to our country over the next century. Maybe we ought to start doing something about it now. It's never happened. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting for a second round of conversation with Peter Ward, the author of The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Peter, what I'd like you to do, if you would, please, is talk about the changes that have occurred, beginning with the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s, the oil economy of the 1900s, and coal, which uh, will continue after oil is gone. And then what can we do as individuals, listeners to Radio Curious, readers of the flooded earth, and those who care about our children and grandchildren, which is the large group, to stop this impending disaster or crisis? Well, we know that the Industrial Revolution really has had an an enormous impact upon the atmosphere. And we go back, it was run almost entirely on coal. Uh, The oil economy really is a product of the 20th century, but it was the 19th century when the big Industrial Revolution boom really took place. That was a coal economy. 20th century and first half of the 21st century are going to be the oil economy. And the big fear is that the last half of the 21st century goes back to the coal economy. There's more coal out there than anything else. That is and will be the cheapest form of energy to the power companies. If we live, at least I do, and most, I guess all of your listeners do, on the West Coast, where because it was really colonized, if you will, by European civilization so late. The power plants are a lot newer, but if you go through the Ohio River Valley, and I lived in Ohio for a couple years, or anywhere along the East Coast, you see these old-style, really old-style coal power plants. Coal is running this country, just as it is running China. China and India are increasing their power consumption just by enormous leaps and bounds every year, and it's the vast majority of it is coming from coal. And whenever I, I hear somebody on the radio or the TV especially, you see these ads, clean coal. That's that's an oxymoron on the level of military intelligence. Clean coal, there is no such thing as clean coal. Peter, I'd like you to uh, give some background here for our listeners about how you get power out of coal, how you get electricity out of coal. Well, the coal we have on this planet is actually due to this this really crazy geological accident that itself is fascinating. Most of the coal on the planet got piled up in a fairly short interval of time during the time we call the Carboniferous, or the coal era. This was soon after the very first trees and forests developed in a time called the Devonian period, starting about 400 million years ago, till right through this Carboniferous, which ended about 300 million years ago, We have these gigantic early forests. And the thing is that, as far as we can tell, termites, and even more than termites, the bacteria necessary to break down wood had not yet evolved. So all these trees grew very quickly. They had very poor roots because they were so primitive. They grew fast and fell over, grew fast and fell over and got buried. And as they got buried, they got buried before they rotted away. Right now, if you knock a tree over and leave it out on your front lawn for a year or two, All the bugs go in. It just disintegrates. But back then, nothing ate it up. We got all this coal that formed. So we've got this big, enormous quantity of what's called reduced carbon. 
because oxygen never got to those cells, all kinds of internal energy is still within them. Oil is reduced carbon. Coal is reduced carbon. When you oxidize it, when you add oxygen to it, you release energy. And that's what burning is, just the release of energy. So all of that stored energy sits there in the coal and in the oil. And we have been, it's, it's clearly the easiest type of energy to get, and we've been exploiting it. And that capitalism will make sure that the cheapest wins. And that's really what's taking place right now. So we burn coal to heat our homes and our buildings and our offices, but we also make electricity out of coal. Quickly, how is that done? Well, coal itself can power a generator. And all you need to do to produce energy is you start things spinning. You need energy to start things spinning. I mean, it could be done with hydroelectric. That's what we do in our our state. Not enough, but some of it. Water causing a wheel to spin, that spin itself can be converted into electrons. We are doing the same thing. We are simply, a steam engine is, is using coal to cause water to expand. It causes things to turn. In our case, the things that turn are turbines that produce electrical pulses, and they move right to our homes. They produce our electric heaters, or in the case of uh, other say a dishwasher or anything that turns, you've got this spinning set of production. We need to get to more hydroelectric, but we really need to get to the fact that we have in the bottom half of this country the potential for solar power. Every roof in America should be white. That alone would cause the amount of sun hitting our planet to reflect back in space. Every home in Arizona should have a solar hot water heater on it, but more than that, it should have photoelectric cells on it. Australia is leading the way. Australia is, in many cases, more and more citizens are exporting electricity to the grid. In other words, they are, just with their roof, little tiny energy producers, solar energy producers. Why is it that we we should have every single roof in California with the same sort of solar cell on it? Why don't we do that? Well, the answer is that we it, it takes 20 years of a citizen's money to buy this out. Most people can't afford to do it. This is where the government needs to step in. In the 19th century, even in the corrupt days of the latter half of the 19th century, America did a couple of enormously powerful things. They put railroads almost everywhere, and they invested in land-grant colleges. That system has just been so great. In the 50s, we produced a highway system that actually really, through infrastructure, increased the productivity of our particular country. At this moment, we need to take that same step at a governmental level and deal with climate change. But at the same time, climate change and energy production are so linked. They are the same thing. We have to increase energy in this country through every tiny possible way. And instead, what we're seeing is that big oil just keeps going and going and going. Well, being of a curious nature here at Radio Curious, um, I was about to ask uh, the source of your hope. Uh, towards the end of your book, The Flooded Earth, you talk about uh, hope for trying to resolve these things. And perhaps the answer is in what you just said. We have done it before. Can you tell us? what we ought to do now specifically? Well, those of us who 
understand this need to talk to people who don't. You know, instead of some guy writing a book like me and trying to sell it, which is what the book companies are trying to do at some exorbitant price, <laughs> sorry, book company, it's the people who get it. And I imagine the thing is, when I speak on radio shows such as this, I'm talking almost entirely to the converted. The challenge is, how do you get through to the people who would never listen to your radio show? I ask you that question. Well, what you need to do is you, you know that neighbor. I think it has to be on a one-on-one conversation. I think you need to find some person who really takes the opposite tack but respects you as a neighbor and go talk to them. It has to be just as energy saving has to be done at the individual level, so does education have to be done at the individual level. It can't just be up to the TV shows. It can't be up to the people such as you and me who are trying to make a dent here. It's got to be not just local action in saving electricity, local action in reducing the amount of pollutants we put in the atmosphere. It's got to be local action in education, in educating people. With bicycles, for example. Well, you never hear about even even more than that. You just need to talk to people. You need to know who who gets it and who doesn't. You know, it's, it's much more than just your action at a local level for your own carbon footprint. It's got to be your action at a local level with your neighbors. I think it's coming down to that. So do we talk to the senior senator from Oklahoma and his colleagues who deny global warming and perhaps believe in a creationist theory of how our species came here to Earth? Or do we talk to their constituents? Well, the constituents, and the younger the better. I mean, the hope that I see now is that all the students I talk to and the students I see get it. At this stage, we need to be talking to um, the kids. I mean, I think that you talk to this, the senator from Oklahoma will do nothing. This man is set in concrete. You need to get to the kids and the younger kids, the youngest kids possible. And here's the second thing that I think needs to be done, and I hope someone in Silicon Valley hears this. I've got a 13-year-old boy. There's one thing he likes to do more than anything in the world, and that's play video games. And he's not alone. He and all his friends, they're totally addicted to it. And as much as you put limits on them, they will sneak around, they will get up in the middle of the night, they'll do anything to get to the video games. I learned a lot of science in the 50s and 60s from reading the great old science fiction books, which were based on science. Why can't we make science literacy among our kids increase? You can't beat the video games. You join them. We get our best designers to make science literate video games, games that are fun, but it's fun simply because you have to navigate and increase your science understanding. I think you just, you just, there's realism that has to be done here, and I think that's one of it. We need to become more science literate. It has to be through our kids. It's not going to happen from the old book and paper wrote stuff. But they are so intrigued by the electronics. We have to get at them through that avenue. In the flooded earth, you make a number of suggestions about uh, developing countries, China, India, and Brazil, limiting their emissions without limiting economic growth. How do we get to the people and the government of those countries? Boy, I don't know. This is the toughest thing. Why are we having this runaway global warming? It's because we're having runaway population. We need to reduce the population on this planet. How do you do that? You raise standards of living. But standard of living now is totally directly related to energy. The more energy you have available, the more cheap energy you have available, the higher your society's standard of living. This is the terrible thing. We need to cut somehow this horrible Gordian knot. 
We need to raise standards of living. That will cause world child production per woman to drop. In every industrialized country, that's what's happened. But to get this to happen now in this vast areas of, of along the northern tier of Africa, uh, sub-Sahara Africa, and especially through Asia, we've got to raise standards of living without raising our carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to 1,000 parts per million. People keep talking about these tipping points, but 1,000 ppm, we know from the geological record that there has never been huge ice sheets when CO2 is that high. That means 240 feet of sea level rise. I mean, that, that's the end of society as we know now if we end up causing sea level to rise like that. Every single, think about every single coastal city is gone, entirely gone. Well, Peter Ward, author of The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps, and as you just mentioned, sea level rise of 240 feet. Thanks again for being with us on a second round of Radio Curious. Is there another Eureka moment beyond what you experienced in Antarctica on your two visits? Well, I guess the big Eureka moment for me is in one of my classes and having given this lecture about what is happening to the past and the present, just taking the past and using it to understand global CO2 levels, carbon dioxide levels in the present, is just seeing sort of the light bulb go on in students. I mean, those are the moments. That's what we have to get to is we need to get to ever younger students and just show them the power of what science can do and the understanding of what a person can do. And are there any other things that you would like to do in your one precious life, or what's your best memory in the work that you've done? Uh, the best memories are those really scientific Yahoo moments when you've made a very interesting scientific discovery. Um, that I, I'm just going to try to do the rest of my life trying to get to see that Yahoo moment in some kid when you try to explain to him why we need to reduce our production of greenhouse gases. And finally, Peter Ward, is there another book that you could recommend other than Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth? Well, Tim Flannery, I think, is one of my favorite people on the planet. And uh, he has written a book called The Weathermakers. But Flannery is one of those people who has translated from scientist to science writer to now uh, climate politician. And any of the Tim Flannery books, I think, are just fantastic things to look at. Peter Ward, author of The Flooded Earth, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thanks so much. This interview with Peter D. Ward, a paleontologist and professor of biology and earth and space sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle, was recorded on August 2nd, 2010. He is the author of The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps. The book that Peter Ward recommends is Weathermakers by Tim Flannery and any book by Tim Flannery. Radio Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. 
We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541 and the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>